Hebrews. Christ and the beginning of the world to come. Christ and the beginning of the world to come. Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and the somewhere is Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. This is continuing now with the quote. And you'll notice how the writer of Hebrews has been using the Old Testament over and over. So this is still continuing now. Verse 7 is still the quote from Psalm 8. You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. End of quote. Now the writer of Hebrews. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And and then he says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't look around you. But here's what we do see. But we see him, an individual... Speaking of Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. So so when you look at man, we don't see everything under his feet. When we look at Jesus, verse 9... Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And that doesn't seem to go with that. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for... How many people here, by the way? Yeah. Everyone. Now, there's a flow to the opening two chapters of the book of Hebrews, but they're not easy to define and... And pick out. Of course, we've we've seen it's a letter all about the uh, redemptive priestly ministry of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God the Son incarnate. He's, as the opening of chapter 1 states, he is the ultimate revelation of God. He is God's living Redemptive revelation displayed in these last days. Chapter 1, verse 2. And so what that means, we spent weeks on this, that his coming is the conclusion of all that God was preparing the world for with the law and the prophets and the sacrificial system. It was all designed to take us right to the coming of the Christ. And from there... The writer of Hebrews, once you get past the first few verses of chapter 1, he unfolds the many ways in which Jesus Christ is superior to, to any prophet. We studied that. Superior to any angelic being. And so we kind of traced our way through those various Old Testament texts. All of which, our writer says, were actually written about the Christ, the Messiah, God the Son. And we spent two weeks on how shall we read our Old Testaments. 
the idea the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across is that Jesus has always been the theme of all those previous revelations. They are all incomplete without him. And that means something very striking for our world today. What it means is God never intended there to be a separate, standalone Jewish religion. It was never God's intention. He was always tying up the threads of previous covenant revelation, pointing it to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That brought us to the first four verses of chapter 2, where we were last Sunday morning. There's a grace-filled warning in those first four verses of chapter 2. Let's not neglect this. How will we escape if we drift away from such a great salvation? There were consequences for breaking the old covenant, the law in the Old Testament. How could we possibly think with a greater revelation that there wouldn't be consequences if we just neglect it and slip away from it? So there's a great deal at stake for New Testament Christians like us, the way we hear the revelation we have received in Christ. So, so the revelation in Christ is not just an event. There's also a necessary response to this real historic event. And so our writer makes a plea to these Jewish believers. That's his audience. He says, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We studied those words last Sunday morning. This, this mental attention. It's not the same as denying doctrinal truth. What we're being called to is not neglecting it. It's different. It's a, it's a mental focusing in our writer tells us this kind of spiritual concentration matters. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, chapter 2, verse 3? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, there is no escape if you neglect this. This is where we've come in our study. And then something important happens in chapter 2, verse 5, that it forms a kind of transition to, to a brand new subject. You might think when you start reading verse 5 that the writer is going to go back to more of those comparisons. He's done about five of them. He's going to go back to more comparisons, the greatness of Christ compared to angelic beings. Because he starts verse 5 saying, now it was not to angels. And you think, oh, here he goes again. We've had eight of these comparisons from Old Testament texts. I guess he's just going to give us a string more. And he will give us more. But something else comes up first. He, he actually turns our attention to what he calls, if you've got your text there, it says, the world to come. So, chapter 2, verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Do you see that in your text? The world to come of which we are speaking. And that just seems like a mistake. That's the first thought that went to my mind as I'm working through this text. 
The last part of that fifth verse says that the writer has been speaking of the world to come. And if you've been following these messages or reading through the book of Hebrews, where, where we want to ask, has this letter been dealing with the world to come? And you look back over the first chapter and a half up to the beginning of the second chapter and we don't see the world to come mentioned anywhere. What are you talking about? Or do we? And so you go back to chapter 1 and you start looking at verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world is this not working can't help you working now when you say everything I did is up there do you mean my whole life because I'm not comfortable with that In these last days, heir of all things. Maybe that's what he means when he talks about the world to come. Or, here's another text. Tell me if this is up there. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. And then he says, is this working? They will perish. They will perish. But you remain They will, this is the future, all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. Your years will have no end. Now, so I've showed you two texts where maybe, maybe he's talking about the world to come there. Because he says he's been speaking about it in verse 5, the last part of verse 5. So maybe that's where he's been speaking of it. Remember, this letter was written to Jewish believers. That's the audience. These believers have, well, they've poured their hearts into this one old covenant, this one era of revelation. They've done so with deep devotion, the law and the prophets. And what that means is this final revelation of God the Son, Christ incarnate. It didn't arrive for these Old Testament believers. It's not like it just came into a vacuum. It was a massive mental transition for these people who were taught to revere and honor the Old Covenant and the prophets. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, but I say, you've heard this, but I say unto you. We handle it okay, but these people, it was a huge mental leap for them to put this all together. Their whole religious system, all their worship, it was based on a previous 
albeit incomplete, understanding that totally ignored what God was fulfilling in these last days through Christ. Jews, on large, still reject what God has done in Christ in these last days. They reject it. So remember, in contrast to most of us with our non-Judaic upbringing, we have an easier time hearing the gospel in some ways. For these to whom the writer of Hebrew was writing this letter, these last days were a massive transition from all of their previous worship, all their previous devotion. These last days were a whole new world to come. A whole new world. That's important. These last days, chapter 1, verse 2, are the world to come, chapter 2, verse 5. As these Jewish believers start to see with gospel eyes all of a sudden, the fulfillment of everything that they had been involved in. So our writer is telling them that God is initiating the final era, the last chapter, the incarnation of the one who would bring all of redemptive history to its designed, built-in conclusion. So, parts of the world to come are still to come. We call it eschatology. The second coming, the resurrection. Parts of the world to come are still to come. So while that era will eventually climax in the rule and reign of Christ over an entirely new creation, these last days have their beginning. The world to come has its starting point, Bethlehem, with the coming of the Messiah. Remember, our writer has the nerve to say that he has been speaking all along of a whole new world to come. It's in that fifth verse of chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. What I've been saying is that was a hard message for a Jewish audience to hear. They had their expectations of what the Messiah would do when he came. They had expectations of a brand new temple that would be built. They had expectations of their nation's enemies finally being vanquished. They had expectations of all the earth seeing the glory of the restored, eternally blessed Jewish people of God and the nations of the earth coming to Israel. That's what they were waiting for. It never happened. So it's not easy for the writer of Hebrews to say, when I talk about Christ, I'm talking about the whole new world to come. It was a hard thing for them to hear. But it's not just hard for them. It's hard for you. It's hard for me. You never gain anything not being honest when you deal with the scriptures. And so here we are. We all read our New Testaments. We read of the power of the Spirit. We read of the greatness of the kingdom. We read of the glory of the new covenant people of God. We read of God's triumph over all the earth. And here we are. Life 
seems pretty ordinary a lot of times. Sometimes it seems downright discouraging and oppressive. There, there are moments of glory, but they're not constant. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself sitting in a church service singing either a hymn or worship choruses, singing songs that just that just talk about mountains clapping their hands and the and and the majestic reign of God over all the earth and how great and mighty and omnipotent and everything else. And here we sit while we sing those songs. We get sick. We lose jobs. We pray for backslidden family members. What's going on? And now after all that work, okay, we're finally ready to see where today's text strides onto the stage with real striking relevance for us. And once again, because he's writing this letter to Jewish believers, he takes everyone right away, not surprisingly, back into the Old Testament. That's the Bible that they used. Don't panic. Point number one. Our present circumstances make it hard for us to imagine God's original creation intent for our lives. It has been testified somewhere, and now he's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man. Don't get confused. This, this are the same. This is not Jesus here in this text, son of man. He's talking about us. He's talking about people. He will talk about Jesus in a minute, but that's not what that's about. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We should all pause and just consider. It takes a bit of mental work. We should consider how striking it is that when our writer urges concentration, verse 5, on the world to come, okay, that's what he says he's been talking about, When he urges our concentration on the world to come, the first thing he does is he pulls our attention back to the world that was originally created in Psalm 8. He he takes us backwards to make us think about the world to come. Here's here's what we know. The psalmist, this is a quote from Psalm 8, verses 4, 5, and 6. That's what the writer of Hebrews quotes. The psalmist is stunned at the attention and glory that the Creator has invested in mankind. And so that opening question of Hebrews 2.6, which is quoted from the psalm, that opening question just hangs in the air as one of the greatest questions ever asked in Scripture. What, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Why is God so interested in us. There's no reasonable explanation for the dignity that's just been lavished upon him. And so he continues quoting that psalm in Hebrews 2, 7 and 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
He says for a little while lower in the angels because there's no indication that eventually when the new creation is established and we rule and reign with Christ that we will be under angels. Just an interesting sideline. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Everything. Under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And those words, I think, are meant to take us back to the book of Genesis... 1, 26, 27, 28. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. There it is. Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the way he did it. Two. Two genders. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He put everything under his feet, the psalmist said. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heaven, every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the writer of our Hebrews text, he knows what he's doing. That glorious description of the created glory and majesty and dignity of mankind, that's where the problem lies, isn't it? I mean, every angry atheist on the planet screams out the disparity between what Christians claim to be true of the love and splendor of our great God and the moral mess of this present world. What kind of God do you people believe in? Look at this world. That's exactly where the writer of Hebrews is leading our thoughts. He means for us to ask that question. Point number two. Almost nothing in our present world reflects the glory of our text description of the created order. He says it in just one one little phrase. At present. So, Feb... 2017, present. We don't see everything in subjection to man. Everything's out of control. Is that fair? Twelve words. It's all it takes. It's all it takes to gain universal agreement with this point. It's just unarguable. The headlines prove it. The wars, the disease, they prove it. Our own private thoughts, if everybody knew them. All our fallen desires, they prove it every day. The created bliss of the Garden of Eden is light years away. Messiah didn't liberate the Jews. The risen Lord of creation hasn't created the kingdom of God on earth. Doesn't look like it to me. Look again at that short sentence. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we're reminded of what we don't see and what we long to see. 
But those words aren't totally void of hope. It really depends on which words you put the hit on when you read them. Read it again and read it this way. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Present, yet. Those are timing words. And they lead us directly into the next point in our text. Point number three. If your heart aches for the glory of the world to come, look to Jesus Christ today. Hebrews 2.9. So he's just talked about what we don't see. We don't yet see, not at presently. But, but we see him. Now he's talking about Jesus. He'll make that clear. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the very first time in the book of Hebrews, it's the very first time that the birth name of God the Son is used. This is the first time he calls him Jesus. But we see him, Jesus. And so the clear intention of the writer is to focus my attention, your attention, these Jewish believers to whom he writes, he wants to focus everyone's attention on the incarnation. You shall call his name Jesus. When? Well, when he's born. When he comes into this world. So he's focusing now. Here's what we see. Jesus, his birth. And there's a reason for that emphasis. The writer of Hebrews, he, he, he's wanting to deal with some tough questions. If Jesus really is God the Son, if he really is the Christ, the Messiah, if his glory really is that which is set forth in the opening chapter of this letter, superior to prophets, angels, and everything else, then, then why is his rule not complete? Why is it not obvious? Why is it so unfinished? And what's more, the writer of Hebrews has just spent a chapter and a half proving the superiority of Christ to angels. Those are all online. So now it's strange. He goes to Psalm 8 and he clearly states Jesus was made lower than the angels. What, what kind of superiority is that? Where's the evidence of it? That's, that's the not, K-N-O-T. The not, the writer of Hebrews is trying to untie in this ninth, ninth verse. And the key to understanding the plan of God is to notice the way the writer of Hebrews contrasts the way mankind was made lower than the angels with the way Jesus was made lower than the angels. See, man, us, mankind, in Psalm 8, was made lower than the angels to show his greatness. He's just below the angels. Your, your pet, 
I'm, you might love your pet very much, but your, your, your puppy, your cat, your budgie, your goldfish, they are not made just lower than the angels. You were. What that shows is your greatness. Jesus acknowledged, are you not much more valuable than sparrows, he said? And the answer is, yes, much more. We're not the same as the animals. So just lower than the angels shows mankind's greatness. Jesus was made lower than the angels to show his condescension. It's totally different. Though God the Son, he took the nature of man along with the name Jesus, and the purpose of it all was, verse 9, tasting death for everyone. And so... Our writer, the writer of Hebrews, he wants us, right now, he wants us to think this all the way through. And so he links, quoting Psalm 8, the original grandeur of creation, the dominion and the greatness that mankind was created with, and he links it with, the condescension of Jesus, lower than the angels, and the suffering of death, verse 9, and the tasting of death, verse 9. And what we're meant to put together now is the plain fact that what was lost, we don't see everything under his feet, speaking about mankind. It's not the way God created it. And what I'm meant to put together is What was lost in the fall can only be restored in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. We don't see everything under man's feet. We don't see the glory, the splendor of creation. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, suffering death, tasting death for everyone. This is also, by the way, the very first time the death of Jesus is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. It was hinted at more vaguely in chapter 1, verse 3, but he doesn't use the words until here. And here it is. It is Christ's death that opens the gates for his being crowned with glory and honor, verse 9. That's the writer's way of telling us lost glory will only come through the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God. So he alone, not the prophets, not the angels, he alone is the gateway into a new creation begun in his resurrected body. In his own flesh, that world to come, of which he says we've been speaking, that world to come, you want a picture of it? It's in the resurrected body of Jesus, and we're all following. He's opening up a new creation. It's a huge thing. So with that in mind, you go back and you read those words we discussed the last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection. True enough. We, just like these Jewish believers to whom this letter was first directed, we need to take God's whole plan in mind. You don't see it yet. But that's our writer's point. The death of Jesus, his condescension, 
this humiliation, the incarnation, and his ascension. All of that is now a past historic certainty. Everybody knows about it. That, he says, is the guarantee of our future exaltation with him. So yeah, you go through all sorts of things. Some problems are solved and some aren't. Some troubles go away and some don't. But we are still the church of the firstborn, 1223. We are going in that direction. Here's how I want to close this. I want to read to you The danger of reading a quote is it might not hit others the way it hits you. So I want to close with my own personal favorite Easter new creation quote. I was in my first year of Bible school when I first read this. I wrote it out. And every once in a while when it's a snowy February day, and you think there's no hope for a happy life ever again. This isn't just one of my favorite quotes. This might be it. G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book, The Everlasting Man, listen to this. On the third day, the friends of Christ, coming at daybreak to the place, found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder, but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation, with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool Not of the evening, but of a brand new dawn. Oh, come on! (laughs) But they didn't realize the whole old order, not finished yet, the whole old order died that night. And a new creation was born. Now, if everything else about this day so far has made you miserable. Does that not gladden your heart? Yeah, yeah. If you don't have that hope, what time is it? If you don't have that hope, you you apply this to life, to real life. So here you are, and whether you're a, a CBC, CTV, CNN, Fox News, I don't know what your preference is. And I don't know what your political uh, persuasion is. That, that's your issue. But everybody of all political stripes watches and says, what in the world is going wrong with people? Do we not? Don't you watch and go like, what? are we all going crazy here? Whether you're on the right or the left or somewhere in between or way right or way left, do, do, you, just, do you just not sense that people are getting crazy? I'll tell you why that is. I'll tell you why that is. There's a very profound reason for it. Because wherever you are in the political spectrum and you're not getting your way, if, if in this age, Paul says, we have hope only, it's a miserable mess. That's what he says. 
Because if, if, you, if you're on this side or this side, and if this whole, your, 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 your wish list, your agenda, if it all falls apart, what have you got? Right? If this breaks, we have nothing. Look where we stand with a risen Lord who is the entry point into a whole new creation. And that is where we're going. And it is as certain as the resurrected body of Jesus is certain. So we have a hope, we used to sing it, that is steadfast and certain, gone through the curtain and touching the throne. I used to love that song. Let's pray.